Welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike, I'm the pastor, and you're here for the, oh, what is it now? Eighth part? I think it's eighth, yes. Eighth, probably out of nine parts looking at the letter to 1 Peter. We're in the second half of uh, chapter four this time. We're going to read that in a moment. We're going to pray first. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for open hearts and open minds, open because of your spirit and ready to receive what you have for us today. Amen. Okay, here we go. Here's the reading, starting at verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Here we are towards the end of this amazing letter. I'm sure I've said it before. Say it again. Do take the opportunity to read it through all at one go. It takes a little bit longer than just listening to the chunks at a time. But it doesn't take forever and it is worth it. Now we're towards the end of the letter and this section is all about suffering. Verse 12 mentions an ordeal. Verse 13 mentions sufferings. Verse 14 mentions being insulted. 15 and 16 both say if you suffer and 19 refers to those who suffer. So this is obviously the fun bit for Peter. I don't think it really is but it shouldn't come as news to us and Peter's saying as much. Don't be surprised he says. Fiery ordeal. We've had references to suffering before in this letter. In fact, in the hundred verses of 1 Peter, there are 12 references. Now, we think this letter, I say we, those who study these things, I, I read about them. So then I suddenly consider myself to be part of that conversation. Um, the letter is believed to have been written between AD 62 and AD 64. Now, AD 62 was the point at which James was killed. Now, we're talking about the James who wrote the letter, James, that, yes, in the New Testament, not that guy. We're talking about James, the brother of John. So James who wrote the letter is a kind of half-brother of Jesus. James, who was living in Jerusalem, was the kind of local senior leader, I suppose, of the church that was in Jerusalem. But he became quite unpopular with the kind of civil authorities. So they threw him off a wall. And then they beheaded him just in case he hadn't already died. Right. So we think it was between then and 64 AD, which is the point when the Emperor Nero really got going with persecution of Christians. And lots of Christians were tortured and executed under that persecution. So this letter's written before that, which means that when Peter talks about suffering, he's not talking about that threat to life. He is talking about social isolation, economic isolation, so the possibility that if you run a business, people wouldn't buy from you because you're a Christian, intimidation, 
and just generally being treated badly socially in your community. These things are still common in many parts of the world. In fact, in some ways, they can be common in this country, although I think it's less the case now than it used to be. Peter's talk of suffering in a letter is interesting because the letter is generally about assurance and confidence. But I think actually that makes it fit better rather than stand out. So Peter wants to talk not about empty optimism, but about real life. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, he wants the hope to be genuine. You know, he wants them to know that they're in a good place, even though they feel fed up and, and isolated and got at. He wants them to see a bigger picture. He wants them to see that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is new life better than the old life. See, the thing is that with Jesus, and we talked a little bit about this last time when we were thinking about when Peter was reconciled to Jesus after he denied that he knew him. With Jesus, the past doesn't disappear. We talk about how um, God will forgive and forget. But that's an important concept. But it's also important to realise that God doesn't remove from us the consequences of our sin. The thing is, with Jesus, the past doesn't disappear, but its power gets drained. So Peter talks of living hope, of purpose and reason and direction for life, a hope that's an antidote to distractions and sort of glitteriness, glitteriness and soul emptiness, like those kinds of feelings. Peter talks about an invitation to join Jesus' family, the best father they could ever be, and to accept receive, I suppose, life how God originally intended it to be before humanity came and messed it up with the help of the enemy. And Peter has reminded them of all this so they can be confident. So you can then live knowing what the future will be rather than being sort of forever rolled over by what the now is throwing at you. The thing is, Peter doesn't ignore the reality. So he talks about all these um, struggles and ordeals not because he wants to be miserable, but because he wants to say, look, let's, let's not pretend. This is actually what it's like. And he says, you're not like those around you. You follow Jesus. And lots of people don't understand that. And lots of people have a problem with that. But do you know what? He says, Jesus suffered too. He wasn't understood. People couldn't make sense of him. He was isolated, separated, rejected. So you're in good company, because if you have this living hope and a desire to follow where the father is leading, you're being exactly what Jesus was. Peter also says something else really important. If you're going to suffer, make sure it's for the right stuff. OK, don't suffer because you're a problem. You notice that there's that word meddler in there. He says, don't suffer because you're a murderer or all these other things that you might suffer for. Don't even suffer for being a meddler, making yourself a nuisance in other people's lives. And actually, that is echoed in what Paul writes to Thessalonians, Thessalonian churches. So 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business so you might win the respect of outsiders. And although there is reference to suffering in this um, passage and across, across the whole of the letter, there is an equivalent reference to doing good. So I'm not going to read you all nine examples that uh, I identified, but 
In 1 Peter 2 verse 12, it says, live so people recognize God in your good deeds. In chapter 2 verse 15, do good to silence foolish people. In chapter 3, Verse 11 says, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. And then in verses 15 and 16, it says, show gentleness and respect when you talk about Jesus, so that those who criticise your good behaviour will be ashamed. So Peter isn't just saying, oh, isn't suffering difficult? Um, and, and isn't it amazing when you get to suffer because then you get to be like Jesus? He's not saying that. He's saying suffering is a reality. We're not going to pretend it's not there. We're also going to talk about how we engage with it. Tom Wright is a theologian and a writer and formerly a bishop, wrote this about this kind of situation. The wickedness of those who persecute God's people forms the strange frame within which the power of God's transforming love can shine through all the more strongly. Peter's call, you see, is to, is to be good as a response to suffering. And it's also about the culture, the society that he lived in and that he was telling people, talking to people through. So he lived in that same Roman imperial world that they did, a world where lots of people treated the political leaders like gods, where some people believe that, that good worship involved prostitution and where the Jesus way of living had no place in that society. But Peter is realistic about suffering and realistic about doing good in response as a way of living a Jesus-like life in the culture that didn't understand him. At the start of 1 Peter, we said that believers had two homes. One was being chosen by the Father, and that's your spiritual home, if you like, and the other was living in a particular place, that's your geographical home. And doing good in suffering puts those things together. It's being at home in both places. You see, Peter isn't calling for revolution. And you think about the history of the Christian church and the way it's, I don't know, pushed towards things in particularly aggressive or sometimes actually violent and militaristic ways. There's a desire to, to genuinely launch revolution or, or bring about regime change or take possession of geography because they believe that's what God wanted them to do. Peter says doing good in suffering brings together your home in geography with your home in Jesus. So it's a call to live like Jesus here and now. But for them there, Western Turkey, first century, for us here in this culture at this time. Now, as we said, Peter says we'll get a hard time as followers of Jesus because the world doesn't get it. But you should do good anyway. And Peter says there's two reasons for that. One is Jesus asked us to. And that's a good enough reason by itself. And the second is that our culture will notice. People will pay attention to the fact that you do good, particularly when you're suffering. Through this letter, Peter is asking these believers to say that the world is where they are, even if it's not who they are. Notice that Peter doesn't always, doesn't, doesn't just say, I don't need a revolution, Jesus doesn't want one. He, I know he doesn't quite put it like that, but that, that message is there. At the same time, he doesn't say walk away and live in solitude. He says to stay and be part of living the Jesus way. 
And I think that's a really important and powerful thing. I think in some ways, the way Christianity and culture have merged over recent centuries can leave us thinking that our purpose is to make sure our culture functions within the confines of Christian understanding. And A, that's going to be an uphill struggle, and B, I'm not at all sure that Peter would recognise that as a way forward. He says to stay in the place you're in, however it is, and live the Jesus way. Now, I do want to quickly add a little thing to this. I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't want what I'm saying to be misapplied. So it would be very clear. For those who are living under abusive circumstances, whether that's physical or sexual violence, whether it's neglect, whether it's spiritual abuse, where people are using their spiritual understanding to um, manipulate others. I don't believe for a moment that Peter or Jesus or the Father is asking people to remain victims to continue suffering. Peter is addressing something different. And if that is your situation or someone you know is in that situation, it's really important that we don't believe, we don't allow ourselves to be pushed into thinking that God approves of abuse or domestic violence or any of those things because we somehow misinterpret this teaching as stay in difficult circumstances and God, because that's what God wants. I don't think that's applicable there. And it's not what Peter's talking about. He doesn't, he's not talking about personal injury. He's not talking about violence or abuse. He's talking about the behaviour of a culture at large and how Jesus' disciples might respond to that. So he doesn't say that people should uh, abandon their culture and walk away and live in solitude. And he doesn't tell them that they have to change their culture either. Also, he doesn't say that they have to despair of it. And, and this got me thinking. Um, it's got me thinking in a way that I felt was kind of a... a um, <clears throat> so Peter isn't telling anyone to abandon their culture or to launch a revolution or to even despair of the culture that they're in. How much, how much do we see people despairing of their culture? It's quite a cynical thing to do. And, and it's always makes me sad when Christians are cynical because we should have joy and a trust and we should know that things are in God's hands. So instead of that, Peter says we're to focus on doing good where we are. And that, I think, brings us to an important reality check. We can't change our culture by being frustrated with it, by shouting at it or despairing at it. Let's take an, I know this isn't exactly an equivalent, but let's sort of use this as a little metaphor. Imagine that your car breaks down. You're going along as a passenger or a driver and it's making spluttering noises and then it lurches a bit and does that sort of kangaroo jumpy thing and then it grinds to a halt. What do you do? Do you get out of the car, grab at your hair or your clothes, scream at the sky and uh, shout at the car that it ought to do better and it knows it should do better? Do you grumble about its failure to be a proper car? <laughs> 
Do you just jump up and down in, in annoyance? Or do you sit at the roadside feeling disappointed, sitting on the floor, sort of, you know, at a complete loss? How on earth do I go forward from here? The alternative to any of those things is to open up the front of the car, to look under the bonnet and to look at the engine and start dealing with the problems. Each problem needs its own fix. Each broken part, each damaged component is a different situation. And changing culture, I want to say, is a bit like that. You can't change it by law or legislation. Certainly can't change it by shouting at it or getting cross with it. Peter says we can change it by doing good within it. So uh, a disciple who's a shopkeeper, um, if they're going to bring living hope and good news and purpose, they don't have to abandon selling what they sell and just sell Bibles. That's not the way forward. They can talk about their faith when they get the opportunity. And certainly never need to walk away from being a shopkeeper. There are ways of being in that situation, doing good and being a representative of Jesus. So Peter isn't asking the believers to fight their culture. He's asking them to change it by being inside it and by doing good. You know, one of the most powerful witnesses of the early church was in Alexandria. Second century, maybe third century AD. And a horrible disease was just absolutely going through that city, that Egyptian city. And anybody who had anything about them was leaving, getting out of the city where the contagion was, being somewhere else. But not the church. Church stayed. Church stayed and ministered to those who were dying, to those who might not die, to those who suddenly found there was no food for them to eat, those who needed care or shelter. And the perspective of that culture of Christians changed very rapidly as they saw them doing good in a real life situation. Peter isn't asking for a revolution. He's asking for gentleness and respect as we demonstrate and talk about the good news. In fact, Peter knows from experience that the only revolution that's actually going to change anything is the one that Jesus led and it answered darkness with light, not with anger. It answered despair with hope, not cynicism. It answered death with life, not just treating symptoms, but going all the way through death and bringing life through resurrection. Paul's call to suffer as a believer, as a disciple, means staying and having the creativity and the fortitude and the resilience to be able to present life in its fullness to a culture that might not recognise it but needs it. And to do this by being ourselves, the best version of ourselves, to all those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would be creative and gentle, that we would be stayers who are still there in the culture, doing good things and being good news. And help us not to get distracted by our frustration or our disappointment. To leave those things with you and to press on in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's have our questions for this session. Question one, what is happening in the culture around you that might make you despair 
And you need to be on your guard that you don't just feel beaten by it. What's the thing that makes you go, ah, or, or want to sit down by the roadside and cry? Question two, what resources do you have access to that might enable you and maybe those around you as well to be good news, not just to talk good news? Maybe what resources do you have that enable you to do both at once? But what, what do you have? What time, opportunity, skill set is available to you and maybe the small group that you're part of that would mean that you could take that opportunity and bring it to a world that needs Jesus? Question three is one of our challenges again. So we talked about suffering and the difference between um, the sort of Emperor Nero type persecution and the kind of suffering that the people Peter was writing to were experiencing. So the question is this, no, the challenge is this. Make a little space each day over the next week to pray for those believers around the world who are persecuted in much more dangerous, life-threatening ways. Perhaps it might be good to refer to uh, Operation World website, which gives you a different country to pray for each day with some information about how the church is operating in that country. Maybe it might be worth using Open Doors or Christian Solidarity Worldwide um, websites or, or resources for that too. There's lots out there. BMS does material too. But let's, let's see if we can meet that challenge to pray once a day, however briefly, for the church around the world and particularly those who are persecuted. Well, that's it for me for this time. Look forward to catching up with you again next time when we'll do the last in our series on 1 Peter. Take care.